This evening we're going to be talking about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And even as I say that, I know that there will be people who hear this message and inwardly groan. Did he just say doctrine? Nowadays, theology gets a, gets a bad rap as if, as if we can understand something, it loses its mystical factor and, and so is less valuable to us. We want to experience transcendence. And so anything that seems to define things is judged to be putting God in a box and consigned to the category of being dry and dusty. The modern church wants poets that say nothing. They give us empty phrases that we can make mean whatever we want. Not theologians, not, not people who tell us that we might be wrong about something. But what they miss is that these doctrines, these, these truths are what Scripture teaches. They're God's revelation of himself. And so they're not designed to be filed away and, and put on a shelf. They are designed to inspire worship. Some of, this, some, of, some of us this evening may be thinking, well, I, I know justification, I affirm justification. I know so subtly you will be switching off, mentally coasting until we sing again. And I just want to encourage you to do the, the hard work of seeing old truths with fresh eyes. And remember, the reason that we preach to the choir is to get them to sing. And so we're going to look at this majestic doctrine of justification this evening, not so that you can all be assured of my reformed credentials and unorthodoxy, but so that you will sing, so that you will praise God and go home from here in awe and wonder at what a great God we have. So that's where we're going. But for now, let's, let's get into the text. Look with me at verse 1. What then shall we say? If you're using your journals there, you can, you can squiggle out the big four because this isn't starting a new section in the argument. This is a continuation of what Paul has been giving us so far. Where Paul asks, asks now, if all that has come, true is, come before has been true, what about Abraham? Now, to modernize, this might seem funny to us. Why bring up Abraham now? Well, the reason was at the time for the, the Romans... The Romans was written, Jewish thought was that Abraham was justified by his obedience to the law. He had obeyed God and was considered righteous because of that obedience. Now, there, there's lots of historical examples where we see that Jewish thought pointed to, to Abraham as having passed some sort of test or completely followed the law. And as a result of those good works, God made a covenant with him. And so as their foremost example of righteousness, it would have made sense for someone who is reading Paul's letter and hearing how we are saved and made righteous by faith and not by works to put forward this sort of defeater example. Sort of like saying, your, your argument might make sense, but, but it's wrong because it doesn't allow for this scenario. And if the argument doesn't cover Abraham, well, it's not really for us. And so Paul explains here, starting in verse 2, what the Abraham story actually shows us about God's redemptive plan from the beginning. And he starts off saying that 
if Abraham was justified by works, then he would be able to boast. But then he has this really interesting aside. Look down there. But not before God. So the Jewish Christians in in Rome wanted there to be some sort of, of hierarchy of righteousness. Something that they could boast about. Because then they can look down on their Gentile brothers or or at least assume that as long as they are more righteous than other people, then they should be good enough for God. But Paul doesn't even allow the reader to begin thinking like that. Abraham might be better than, than everyone else, but even then he's not righteous according to God's standard. It can be really easy for us to think that because our sin isn't as obvious as someone else's or, or not as outwardly destructive as someone else's, that somehow that makes us more or less righteous. As if by pushing others down, we are lifting ourselves up. But Paul reminds us that even if we outwardly appear to be good, that we aren't good enough to reach the required standard of perfection. And so Paul brings them back to Scripture. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, if you have your journals there or you're taking notes, just just highlight or circle that word credited. And you can look down and circle all the times it's used because it is key to what Paul is saying here. It's in verse 4. Wages are not credited as a gift. Verse 5, their faith is credited as righteousness. Verse 6, God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 8, now the NIV translates it as as count. The Lord will never count against them. But the word is the same for it's credited there. And then in verse 9, Abraham's face was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 11, the righteousness might be credited to them. And it goes on and on. It will come up later. What Paul does in verses four to eight, is explain this phrase that's quoted in verse three from Genesis 15. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul raises the criticism and now he's gonna proceed to destroy it. Look with me to verse four. Now to the one who works, Wages, and and, and that's what we're thinking about here, wages, what we think about is justification, as, as being saved, are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So if you work, you, you, you should be thankful that your employer paid you this month, but it's not exactly a surprise, is it? You, you've done the work, and they are obliged to reimburse you for it. So wages aren't a gift because they have been earned. And what this means is that someone who has earned righteousness has no need for it to be credited to them. They already have it. Can you hear the echo of Jesus saying, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick? The subtext is that if you're out there earning your own righteousness, then why would you need Jesus? But the one who hasn't earned it, that person needs to trust in the God who justifies the ungodly. They need God to credit them with righteousness. 
And then this is backed up by referencing Psalm 32, where David says, blessed are those whose sins are covered. So notice that the sin is present. They did sin, but it has been covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count or, or credit against them. So David is saying that the person who is blessed has actually sinned, so has broken the law, has fallen short, has shown that they are unrighteous, but that God hasn't counted it against them. And if you're wondering, how can this be? Well, how can a just and holy God not count sin against anyone? Well, that's Paul's argument, that Christ has taken that sin and borne it himself. The wind, the God declares us as if we were righteous, even though we sin all the time. It's not a legal fiction because Christ has taken that punishment. He drank the cup. He took away God's wrath. And so when God declares us justified, what God declares is true. We are justified. We are considered righteous because the punishment for our sins has fallen upon Christ. And, and if we truly understand that, that, that it wasn't by any good choice that we made or, or anything worth saving within us or anything that we could do for God that he has saved us, that it wasn't even as if, as if God was some cosmic coach who, who gave us the secret technique that we needed to be righteous, but that God's righteousness was credited to us when we had none, none of our own, then we will actually understand being thankful to God. Sometimes we all live like when we became a Christian, God, God went and got out his, his righteousness pump and, and just, just filled us up. And so we're, we're all good now. We just need to come back here occasionally on the Sundays to, just to make sure we're fully inflated. But the image that we get in the New Testament it's not some, some filling station. It's of a vine and branches where fruit comes from continued union and dependence upon the vine. Jewish thought at the time, and lots of our thought today too, makes it seem like God gave us the ability to meet his standards. Kind of like saying, you can only get a prize if you pass the test and then slipping us the answers on the way in. And so we come out having actually passed the test and, and, and giving God some kind of cover, some kind of justification that he needs to actually bless us. But that's not what happens. Look with me at verse five. Now note that verse five sort of echoes the quote from Genesis 15 in verse three. Abraham is the one who does not work but trusts. God is the God who justifies the ungodly. And the result is that righteousness is credited. And note what is being subtly said here. So write this down. Abraham was ungodly when he was justified. And if he was ungodly when God declared him righteous, then he can't have earned it. That's why in verse 10, Paul starts talking about when Abraham was crucified because righteousness was credited before he had any external markers of being part of the kingdom of God. Verse 13 says, 
It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. It was not because he obeyed, because he was circumcised according to the law, but because God chose him and covered his sins. Now, the, the whole point of this is that Jewish critics would, critics would point to Abraham and say, look, there he is. He was justified by obedience. So all these Gentile Christians need to get on board with what we're doing. To which Paul then goes and shows them how from the beginning, justification came by faith through grace so that no one can boast. Is Abraham a, a defeater example? No, he, he's the opposite. Read your scriptures, Paul says. This is who our God is, a God who acts first, who saved sinners, who justifies the ungodly. Praise the Lord that this is our God. If you take notes, underline verse 16, because here we, sh we shift from having the, the context, the, the counter-argument explained, to seeing the consequences of it. So where a couple of phrases earlier we see that if the promise comes by works, then faith is worthless. Now we see that if it comes by faith, then it is guaranteed. From worthless to guaranteed. And not only to the Jewish Christians, but, but to us Gentiles too. So what does it mean that through faith, our justification is guaranteed? And this is where I've got to be careful uh, to, to speak slowly and try not to get too excited. Because what this means for us is that our place with God is guaranteed. It is certain. I can't, I can't, guys, I can't tell you how many days I wake up and just feel that by breakfast, I messed up again. How many times I have sat down to pray or to read my Bible only to find my mind wandering onto something else? How many times I've had to repent of, of one sin or another? How many times I've had to just force myself to, to come to worship or when I've just felt distant from God? And if my hope for eternity, my hope for salvation were based upon how I felt or how I act, I would have no hope at all. I would be quite literally hell-bound because I know that my righteousness is a weak and pathetic thing. I don't deserve God's love. And yet, I have it. I can know that I am saved. I can know that my future is secure when the whispers of the enemy comes into my ears. I can know that even in those shaky days, those, those down days when I become my own accuser, and I ask myself how I could even call myself a Christian. Even then, I can know that Christ has claimed me. I can know that I'm not condemned before the throne. Do you know that whatever comes our way, even to the valley of the shadow of death, that he walks beside us. And so 
this should lead us to, to worship when the dark closes in around us, when we feel far from God, because we can know that without a shadow of doubt that he will not leave us, he will not forsake us. Even it might feel like that for a time, our final chapter is secure. And it should deepen our worship when we are feeling close to him because we know that, that we don't have to perform for that blessing. We don't have to worry about losing the privilege of being so close to him. No more crushing weight of legalism, just a peace of assurance. I wonder where, where you are today. Are you on that mountain desperately trying not to fall off? Or maybe you're in that valley wondering if you'll ever see light again. Either way, when we look at ourselves, we look at our faith, we aren't led to worship, but to performance. We think that it's, it's gonna be on us to, to improve our standing. We think, what do we need to do? But if we look to God, to the one that we have faith in, and not the, not the size of our faith, if we look to God, then we're gonna be drawn to worship. We are drawn to, to contemplate who God is and what he has done for us. We are comforted in the valley. We are steadied on the mountain. And we are free to glory in the gospel. This is the first consequence of, of justification by faith alone in our passage. The assurance that promise to us is guaranteed and we can enjoy it rather than trying to earn it. Hallelujah. But maybe you don't have an issue with performance. Maybe you wonder what this Wally up the front is doing here. Maybe you agree with it, but it's just not something that is gonna make you sing. Well, is there something else that Paul says that comes as a consequence of justification by faith? Look at me to verse 18. This section brings our attention to how our situations, our capacity to obey the law is, what does it say there? Dead. It's hopeless. Look at all the instances where Paul brings up death and hopelessness to show you this. We start in verse 18. Against all hope. So when Abraham received the promise, his situation made it seem impossible. Then in verse 19, we read that Abraham was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And Paul uses that extreme language to, to underline the impossibility of what God is going to do. He is going to bring life from the dead. And so what Abraham is believing in is not only that the promise will come about, but that God is able to do what he has promised. Abraham looks at God and believes that he can bring life from the dead. He didn't waver in faith because as verse 21 says, he was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we stand on the other side of the cross, but with that same belief that God is able to bring life from the dead. And because we look back on the cross, just like Abraham looked forward to it, we are credited with the righteousness because we trust in the promise of God. 
because we know that God has the power to do what his word tells us. If our justification is through works, then we'll always doubt whether we've done enough. Even if God has prepared us and and given us the answers in the test, the outcome is still unsure. But if we believe that God is able to bring life from the dead, then we don't need to worry about failing because we aren't judged by our works. And so understanding this means that we look to the cross with a whole new perspective. It's not just the door that we have to walk through, not some box to tick, not some symbol like a club badge. It's the means that God has used to bring us into communion with him. It's the lens that we look through. It's the banner of our lives. It is everything to us. Do you treasure the cross? I can tell you the more that you understand this doctrine, the more you will see it in all its glory. The rugged cross, more beautiful than all this world has to offer. It is because of the cross that the disciples all embraced torturous deaths. It's because of the cross that our brothers and sisters in closed countries risk that same faith. It's because of the cross that missionaries leave their homes and their families. It's because of the cross that we endure slander and ridicule here, why we give our time and money, even why why we drag ourselves out the door on a cold winter's night. The cross is what turns our lives from being all about us to lives centered on gratitude and praise. It is the cross that gives us joy when all around us seems so dark. And it is through this beautiful truth that we get all the benefits of the cross. Not because of anything in us, but because of what Christ has done and how God has credited it to us through faith. And it is because of the cross that we can have hope for our unbelieving family and neighbors who could be as far from Christ as we could imagine, who could look utterly spiritually dead, and who nothing we say to seems to make a difference, but who still could be raised to life because of Christ and the cross. Why should justification by faith alone make us sing? Because it shines a bright and clear light on the cross the cross changes everything. There's more here, and, and forgive me for that, but the, the final thing that I think our, our passage gives us reason to be joyous about is that justification by faith alone furthers our dependence and our discipleship. So look finally at verse 25. He was raised to life for our justification. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that God could do that and did do that? Well, if you do, then you need to know that that him being alive secures our justification. We stand before God as his children because Jesus is alive. 
And if he is alive, then he is doing what he said he would do, advocating for us before the throne, sending his spirit to guide us and sanctify us, drawing us to the Father. Because Jesus is alive, we can know that he is going to complete the work that he started in us. And we can know that that is sure and certain because the result of it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the faithfulness of Christ. It depends on the trustworthiness of God. When we see how justification by faith alone acts in our lives, it creates in us a dependency upon God because we realize that there was only one way that we could be saved through God working in our lives. And so as we recognize that apart from him, we can do nothing, we fall on our knees before God. We, we come to him. And in that dependency, we, we learn to walk with him, experience him, love him. Holding on to this doctrine will, will spur our own devotion and discipleship as we see how we've been credited with his righteousness and how we need to stay connected to that righteousness to grow and have life. And it points to the fact that we are connected to the vine, that we will receive nourishment. If it was by works, then we would have to make sure of that, like, like revisiting the tire factory pump. But because we know that it is by faith, we can trust that he will provide for us. And brothers and sisters, he is faithful. He will provide for us. So even if you look at yourself and you don't like what you see, know that this isn't the end. That God is, is molding you now and will transform you on the day of glory into something more beautiful than we can comprehend on this earth. The doctrine of justification might be the start of the path. But we can sing because we see where that path is going and because of who is walking beside us. Justification by faith alone turns us to worship when we see that we are in Christ and nothing can take it away. It makes us thankful and joyous at the cross and gives us hope for our world. And it spurs our own devotion and discipleship. This is not just a doctrine box to tick. This is a reality to get excited about. It is a truth that shows us just how utterly spectacular God is and how amazing it is that we are saved. This is the sweet sound that saved a wretch like me. This is the echo of the trumpet on that final day. This is how we enter into the joy of our salvation. At the foot of the cross, knowing that Jesus paid it all and that what unites us now is not just our sin, but our salvation. So far in this letter, the Roman church has been hearing that they are being united in their sin. But now it's like the end of world, the world war where we get scenes of everyone from every social group rejoicing together, united in their joy and victory. All divisions set aside because of the magnitude of what has just happened. Brothers and sisters, heaven is set before us. Your place at the table of the king has been set. So let's go there now. 
Let's travel on that path together, singing songs of the King as we go, a holy procession, knowing that our promise, our hope, our Lord Jesus is not dead, but he has been raised to life. I don't know about you, but, but I, I need to sing. I need to respond to that. So guys in the band, would you, would you come back up and lead us? Whoever you are and, and, and whatever is going on in your life, if you're in the valley or the mountaintop, we come together and we know that Jesus is alive and that he has saved us. So let's let that move us now to come and praise. Let's pour out our hearts before the cross. Let's stand, let's sing.